We've been blessed as a church. The Lord has brought us, Emily and, and James, to <clears throat> be here. And it's amazing that the Lord has blessed this church so much with the gifts that he's given us. I hope that you recognize the Lord's hand and will praise him for these things. Well, good morning and welcome to our Resurrection Day <clears throat> service. And as you know, every spring we take the time to focus especially on the resurrection of our Lord. But I want you to know that there's nothing more special about this particular day than any other Lord's Day. The church gathers on the first day of the week because the early Christians did so as they remember Jesus' resurrection from the dead. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, to set apart an Easter Sunday for special memory of the resurrection is a human device for which there is no scriptural command. But to make every Lord's Day a resurrection Sunday is due to him who rose early on the first day of the week. We gather together on the first rather than the seventh day of the week because redemption is a greater work than creation and more worthy of commemoration. And because the rest which followed creation is far outdone by that which ensues upon completion of redemption, end quote. Let me take this even further. Israel observed the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week because of the creation account, which tell us, tells us that God rested on the seventh day. Each of the first six days of creation were marked by the phrase, there was evening and there was morning, one day. There was evening and there was morning, a second day, and so forth. The seventh day, though, ends this way in Genesis 2-3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. I would argue that the, this rest, the Sabbath rest, was intended to be perpetual, forever. Creation, including man and the woman was complete and sanctified, and it was very good according to Genesis 1.31. That is God's intention for his creation. Notice I say present tense, is tense. It is his intention. Of course, we have the account in Genesis 3 of the serpent entering the God's perfect creation, the serpent who was a deceiver. And the man listened to him and fell into sin, which brought down the whole of creation. In Genesis 2.17, God had said, In the day you eat from the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So death became the enemy of man from that day forward. Yet in Genesis 3.15, God promised a future redeemer, the seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head and re restore mankind to that Sabbath rest. The Lord Jesus Christ is that Redeemer, amen? He is the Messiah who conquered death, and in doing so, He has redeemed us, and He has restored us to that Sabbath rest in Him. Reality is that Christ conquered sin and death in His death and on the cross and resurrection from the grave. His resurrection proved, make sure we get this, his resurrection proved that Christ has the power to redeem his people. It is that redemption that we celebrate every Lord's Day. We have been 
redeemed from sin, and death has no power over us. We have been given rest in Christ. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit who has been given us to us as a pledge of our full redemption. His resurrection also pro- provides us proof of his majesty. His victory over death demonstrated to the world and to the rulers and authorities that he is truly the Son of God. So we take the time every year about this time in the spring to specifically look at the power of the resurrection. We look forward and hope for our coming, our own coming resurrection when Christ fully redeems us and gives us complete and everlasting Sabbath rest. It is in Christ's resurrection from the dead that the believer finds true victory and hope. Amen? John Calvin says, The cross of Christ only triumphs in the breast of believers over the devil and the flesh and sin and sinners when their eyes are directed to the power of his resurrection. Let us behold together this morning the majesty of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning and praise you that we can come together and gather this morning. Father, I pray that as Christians, as believers in the Lord, that we would always look to a risen Savior. Savior who, yes, endured the cross and, and endured death, but has risen from the grave and ascended on high. Father, this morning I pray that we would look upon His majesty. In Christ's name, amen. Second Peter 1, we looked at this on Friday night if you were here. 2 Peter 1, verse 16 through 18. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. First this morning, I want us to briefly consider the Lord of glory revealed. Peter penned these incredible words in 2 Peter 1, 16-18, almost 40 years before or after he witnessed the glory of Christ on that holy mountain. This morning, as we further consider the resurrection of our Lord, I want us to ponder the significance of Peter's words. If you turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. In verse 13, Jesus and his disciples had made their way up to Caesarea Philippi, an area north of Jerusalem in the upper Jordan Valley, north of the Sea of Galilee, near Mount Hermon. As they were traveling, Jesus began to probe his disciples. He asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, it is clear from the answers of the disciples, from the the answers to the question of these disciples, that, that this answer had been discussed by many people. 
Most likely, Jesus was referring to Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 when he asked this question. In that, in that passage, Daniel describes the vision of the Ancient of Days seated, seated on the throne as myriads upon myriads stood before him. In Daniel 7.13, Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to, to him was given a dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now there's much I could say here, but I want to simply focus on the glory and the majesty of the Son of Man, and the glory of this moment, this coming moment in the future. Daniel gives a brief glimpse of an amazing event where the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days. At this momentous event, he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom which is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And his dominion will be everlasting, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. It's amazing, right? That this people will be made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be before the throne when this occurs. Now, Jesus' question in Matthew 16 focused on the identity of the Son of Man. Now, after the disciples gave various possibilities, which had been discussed by the people, the Lord finally asked in verse 15, But who do you say that I am? With this question, our Lord cuts to the chase, does he not? He wants to know what they think. And we should carefully note the change in Jesus' question. In it, he reveals what he's getting at. He wants his disciples to put two and two together. He wants them to recognize that he, in fact, is the Son of Man revealed in Daniel 7. And Peter doesn't disappoint. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus commends his answer. In verse 18, he promises to build and protect his church. In verse 19, Jesus gives Peter and the other men authority in this coming kingdom. shouldn't skim over that. Now, I want you to stop and imagine what was going through Peter's mind at that defining moment. Most likely, he was having visions of grandeur, was he not? He was probably thinking of reigning with Christ. After all, Jesus is the Son of Man who will be given an everlasting dominion, and he just promised Peter and the other disciples the keys to that kingdom. Let's just say that Peter was having a good day. Yet, Jesus was about to reveal something that would change things forever. In verse 20, he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. What? Huh? Can you imagine Peter's reaction? What do you mean, Jesus? You just revealed that we will reign forever with you, and you don't want us to say anything to anybody? Then Jesus discloses a truth that no one could have seen coming. In verse 21, 16, 21, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Wait, what? 
you don't, you don't, we don't have to imagine what Peter is thinking here, do we? Peter wanted the kingdom and he wanted the glory, but Jesus reveals that the glory will only come after suffering and death. So in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Then comes Jesus' famous rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind on God's in, on, you're not setting your God, mind on God's interest, but man's. You see, this revelation didn't fit Peter's kingdom program, did it not? He's interested in getting a throne, not a cross. He wants the glory, not suffering and death. And yet Matthew 16:24, Jesus doubles down on this promise of upcoming suffering. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. Brothers and sisters, we need to grasp the gravity of this moment. You see, Jesus promised that he and his disciples would, in fact, suffer and die. But with suffering and death comes an incredible promise. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. On Friday night, we focused on the suffering and the cross and the grave. Verse 27 ties back to Daniel's prophecy. It points forward to Revelation 5, which is yet still in the future. And I'll show you this connection in a moment, but Jesus makes a promise here that would stick with Peter for the rest of his life. Jesus promised to reveal his majesty. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And in Matthew 17, we see the Lord of glory revealed on that holy mountain. This is the fulfillment of that promise he made in 1628. Jesus would briefly reveal his glory and majesty majesty to Peter, James, and John on that mountain. Now we must grasp the intertwining of that uh, glory and the suffering that Jesus presents here. Not only had Jesus revealed that he was the Son of Man, he would also suffer for the sins of his people. In other words, the Lord of glory would be the Lord of glory confirmed. The Lord of glory confirmed. Luke reveals that after the revelation of his majesty on that mountain, Jesus began to march toward the cross and the crucifixion. We must recognize that suffering always precedes glory. Said another way, the cross always becomes before the throne. Jesus had to go to the cross to suffer and die before he could be raised to sit on the throne. Peter wouldn't comprehend what Jesus had revealed until after Jesus' death. He wouldn't fully understand until his own death. You see, the Lord of glory revealed not only that he is the Son of Man, according to Daniel 7, but that he would suffer and die for the sins of his people. And if you were here on Friday night, we briefly looked at Jesus' death on the cross. We saw that he bore the awful wrath of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, on the night of his arrest. He knew exactly what was coming. 
He also knew the necessity of it. He had to go to the cross. He had to take upon himself the wrath of the Father. Just listen to Mark 16.33. He took him with him, Peter and James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not I, what I will, but what you will. See, Luke helps us understand the agony of spirit which Jesus felt. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. As, as Jesus made this final approach to the cross, he begged the Father to remove the cup. The cup of wrath. His agony reached such levels that his blood vessels began to burst and mix his blood with his sweat. Why so much agony? It wasn't because he faced the physical beatings. It wasn't because he endured the brutality of the crucifixion. It wasn't because the whole demonic realm would come down upon him, trying with all their might to destroy him. No. It was because he faced the Father's wrath, poured out on him for the sins of the whole world. In the Apostle John's words, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only but for those of the whole world. You see, the Lord of glory took upon himself the sins of the whole world. I don't think we can adequately assess what it meant for him to face the wrath of the Father. We only know that for the period of darkness, for a full three hours on the cross, Jesus silently endured unspeakable torment as the Father struck the one he loved so severe, so much, so infinitely. No movie could capture what this meant. Because the human mind cannot fathom what it means to receive God's wrath. Quite frankly, that's what makes hell so scary. Some people think that we should fear Satan or the heat of hell's flames. We should fear God's wrath. Jesus drank the cup of his wrath for three hours. He drank it dry. And then it stopped. It was at this moment that Jesus cried out, It is finished. It is complete. At that point, Jesus' body was hastily removed from the cross and laid in a tomb. His disciples were crushed. It appeared that Satan, for all of everything, it appeared that Satan had won. The Lord of glory was dead. Dead. And this would be the end of the story if Jesus was not who he said he is. Remember, Jesus began telling him in Matthew 16 that his suffering and death would precede the throne in glory. He even gave them a glimpse of this glory in Matthew 17. The question is, why would Jesus the Messiah need to endure this suffering and death? 
This is the point. I would argue that he did so to demonstrate his worthiness, to to redeem the world to himself. Said another way, he did it to demonstrate his right to the title deed of the world. Daniel 7. Now you might be asking, I hope you are, what all this has to do with the resurrection? Well, here's here's the truth. If Jesus had remained in the grave, if he had not been raised from the dead, his death would be no different from any other death. By the way, his resurrection would have been no different. His resurrection would be no different than other folks who had been raised from the dead. Remember Lazarus? But his death, burial, and resurrection were completely different. J.C. Ryle says the resurrection of Christ is one of the foundation stones of Christianity. It was the seal of the great work that he came, to, came on earth to do. It was the crowning proof that the ransom he paid for sinners was accepted and the atonement for sin accomplished. The head of him who had the power of death bruised, crushed, and the victory won, end quote. Do you remember earlier I referred to Daniel 7? The Son of Man approached the Ancient of of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Revelation 4 and 5 gives us more explanation about this. You can turn there if you'd like. We set the scene. Chapter 4 is the start of the final section of the book of Revelation. I would argue that this is a description of the events that will follow immediately after the church age. Here John is given a vision of the throne room of God, which I can't get into too much, but it matches Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. In 5.1, I believe... In 5.1, I believe John begins to give further information about this event. Let me read it to you. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because there was no one found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So the question that we have to answer is, what is this book or scroll? Well, history tells us that the description of the scroll is typical of contracts in the ancient world. They were used for legal documents, such as marriage contracts, wills, lease agreements, and also for title deeds to property. In this case... Because of the significance that we've already seen of this occasion, I would argue that the scroll most likely contained the title deed of the world. The one worthy of opening it would possess everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom which will not be destroyed. These were spoken of in Daniel 7. 
Now in verse 4, John was greatly distressed because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion which that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now let's break down this verse. <clears throat> the lion from the tribe of Judah refers to an early prophecy given by Jacob, or Israel, in Genesis 49, that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. This prophecy spoke of a, of a coming king, the power of the, a coming king who would rule with the scepter and staff, and to him would be the obedience of the people. This is a prophecy of the Messiah. In his first coming, Jesus only gave a quick glimpse of his power when he showed his glory on the mountain in Matthew 17. Therefore, I would argue that in Revelation 5, that Revelation 5 is the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy. The root of David refers to Jesus' right to rule from the throne of David. Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 11.1 that a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Of course, Jesse was David's father. Isaiah goes on to speak of the Messiah's righteous rule. And I would argue that his prophecy will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Now, let me quickly draw your attention to the verb in verse 5. This person, who I, would, who I again would argue is the Son of Man, the Lord of glory, Jesus the Messiah, has what? He has overcome. The question we must answer is, what has he overcome? Well, beloved, he has overcome sin and death. He has overcome the grave. And in Romans, Romans 1, verses 1 through 4, Paul declares, in verse 4, that this Jesus, who was promised beforehand by the prophets, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. See, the resurrection is much bigger. It's much bigger than we give it credit for. According to Paul, the gospel, the good news, was, that, was promised by the prophets and concerned his son, who was born of a descendant of David, who was declared son of God by the resurrection. Beloved, Jesus' death and resurrection signifies that he has overcome and has been declared to be the son of God with power. That word translated declared has the idea of a horizon and came to mean, to, to mean distinguish, to distinguish. I think that's important that we understand that. Just as the horizon, in the words of John MacArthur, just as the horizon serves as a clear demarcation line between dividing earth and, and the sky, the resurrection of Jesus Christ clearly divides him from the rest of humanity, providing irrefutable evidence that he is, in fact, the Son of God. I would take this a step further and say that it signified that he alone... Get this, he alone is worthy to open that scroll. He alone is worthy to be given an everlasting kingdom, a, a glory, and a kingdom that will not be destroyed. John goes on 
in Revelation 5. Wished I had time to read it. But he goes on in Revelation 5. Look at verse 9 if you're there. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Where have we heard that before? Daniel 7, right? And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Beloved, because of the resurrection, we will reign with him on the earth. We are that, those nations that he speaks of. Beloved, it is, it is the resurrection of Christ that set these things in motion. In the words of A.W. Tozer, we understand and acknowledge that the resurrection has placed a glorious crown upon all Christ's sufferings. Just listen as J.C. Ryle explains it. We need not wonder that so much importance is attached to our Lord's resurrection. It is the seal and memorial stone of the great work of redemption which He came to do. It is the crowning proof that He has paid the debt he undertook to pay on our behalf, won the battle he fought to deliver us from hell, and is accepted as our guarantee and our substitute by our Father in heaven. Had he never come forth from the prison of the grave, how could we ever have been sure that our ransom had been fully paid? Had he never risen from his conflict with the last enemy, how could we have felt confident that he has overcome the power of death from the devil? But thanks be unto God. We are not left in doubt. The Lord Jesus really rose again for our justification. Amen? Beloved, if his body still lay in the tomb, Peter and the rest of the apostles are liars. If Jesus did not raise, rise from the grave, you, you, you are still dead in your sins. If he did not conquer death, you have no hope in this life, nor in any life to come. Brethren, if Jesus is not alive today, we have hoped in Christ in this life only, and we are of all people most to be pitied. Yet, he is risen. He is risen indeed. In the mighty power of God, He has been raised from the dead and seated at His right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And here's the most amazing part. If you believe in Christ, if you are in Christ, you have been raised up with Him in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. He did this so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Church, the resurrection has guaranteed this. The resurrection has guaranteed this. Just listen to John MacArthur. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest gift or event, that is, in the history of the world. 
It is so foundational to, the, to Christianity that no one who denies it can be a true Christian. A person who believes in a Christ who has not been raised believes in a powerless Christ, a dead Christ. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then no redemption was accomplished at the cross, and your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. I want to, make a, I want to close by making a plea to those who don't know Christ Jesus, who have not beheld His majesty and the power of His resurrection. I beg you to consider Him. He is good. He is merciful. And if you come to Him humbly, He will not reject you. I will give, defer to Charles Spurgeon in closing our time. Let's listen to Brother, Brother Spurgeon. I want thee, then in the sight of God, to answer me this all-important and solemn question. Art thou in Christ, or art thou not? Hast thou fled for refuge to him who is the only hope for sinners? Or art thou yet a stranger, ignorant of God and of his holy gospel? Come, be honest with thine own heart, and let thy conscience say yes or no. For one of these two things are true this day. Thou art either under the wrath of God, or thou art delivered from it. Thou art either an heir of wrath, or an inheritor of the kingdom of grace. Which of these two? Make no ifs or ahs in your answer. Answer straightforward to thine own soul. And if there be any doubt, whatever about it, I beseech you, thee, rest not until that doubt be resolved. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. For your majesty. Lord of glory revealed the Lord of glory crucified the Lord of glory consigned to the grave the Lord of glory confirmed declared to be the son of God by the power of the resurrection. Father, I pray for those who are here today. They wouldn't let a day go by if they don't know you. If they haven't truly believed in the death, burial, and resurrection, the sinless life, the perfect atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.